Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tavenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture history curator Freya Liggett drops by to tell us about the range of exhibits available at the MAC this summer. The Spokane Symphony's James Lowe checks in with his thoughts surrounding the orchestra's now completely available virtual spring concert series. Doug Nadvornik shares the story of artistic achievement by two of our region's students, and from our most recent kids' concert, we'll hear from the Morozov family, trumpeter Sam and violinist Jesse, whose playing of the music of Sebastian Bach takes us into this edition of Northwest Arts Review. The Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture, the MAC, has had to make a range of adjustments through the pandemic year, from virtual-only mode early on through very limited patron access to the more open but still ticketed admissions now in effect. Recently, the MAC's history curator, Freya Liggett, dropped by our studio to talk about these new rules and the range of exhibits up for this summer. We do now indeed enjoy the company of Freya Liggett, who is a history curator with the Museum of Arts and Culture here in Spokane. So greetings, Freya. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to uh, actually be sitting in a room with another person today. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> well, I guess in your job, an awful lot of it was virtual for quite a while. Yes, I'd say this this last year has been unlike uh, any other I've experienced working in museums. And boy, we've we've learned a lot, uh, you know, in terms of working virtually. But there there are some aspects that you just absolutely have to have in person. So seeing the difference between those two has been very interesting. Are you able now to work more on site than you were? Yes, um, our, our staff is, is slowly returning. Um, I, I'd say there's some flexibility there still, but um, yeah, there are definitely the days like today. You, you mentioned how nice it was outside, and you know, we're able to take advantage of out, outdoor spaces uh, in ways that I don't think we would have in the past, even if it's just for you know, a short meeting. Mm-hmm. There are certain silver linings to this whole situation. Not a lot, mind you, but no. there are some. <laughs> there are definitely some. You have to find them. What is the work of a curator, a history curator specifically? Okay, I'm, I'm glad you qualified that because it's a little bit different, I think, depending on what industry you're in and what your focus is as to the, you know, the job that people expect you to be doing. And uh, for a history curator, um, 
my role is about preservation, but it's also about storytelling. Uh, I work with the Campbell House, and I work with exhibitions at the MAC. And, you know, for a lot of other folks, I know that might mean uh, working with art or just running the administrative end of a museum. That, that word curator is very interchangeable, depending on the scale and size of museum that you're working in, for sure. Where'd you learn all this? Well, I, I learned some in school, and I learned a lot on the job. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. My background is primarily in anthropology and archaeology. The most recent place that I was working prior to the MAC was in Moses Lake at the Moses Lake Museum and Art Center for a little over a decade. Uh, as their manager there, and it was just a fantastic place to be. What's the situation now in terms of the pandemic and the accessibility of the MAC for those who want to go there? Well, at the MAC, you know, we're very fortunate to have a beautiful campus and a lot of space. You know, I think for for smaller museums and, and folks who might be within the confines of, a say, a historic house museum, like we do have on the campus, but we also have these much larger galleries. Um, at least for me right now, it feels better than a lot of places that you might choose to go um, in terms of having some space. I guess I can't really quantify it that well, but it is it is more comfortable. Typically, in the quote-unquote normal times, as many people as wanted to come to the back on a day, mm-hmm. uh, that would be just fine, the more the merrier. But obviously, there's still some requirements that will limit the, the number of people. There are, and I think that's where one of those silver linings comes into play. The MAC has adopted time ticketing, as all museums in Washington were required to do as part of the reopening strategy for our industry. But there are a lot of benefits to that. We know when groups are coming, how many people are going to be there. Um, of course, that allows us to control traffic through the galleries and provide that, um, you know, provide a little bit more space for our visitors while they're on campus. But it, it also, I don't know, I think there's a little bit more of a personalization there. We know your name when you're coming. That's been especially interesting, even with tours over at the Campbell House. Those are self-guided right now, but... I know that there's been quite a few instances where someone has said, oh, and I knew someone who worked for the Campbells or, you know, just there, there's some of those some of those little um, little tidbits. And we actually have a way to say, oh, well, we, we know who came to that tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, I, I think we're we're on a more personal level with our visitors right now in a way that we might not have been otherwise. Right. Absolutely. Again, the tickets are available online through northwestmuseum.org. And what are they going to see this summer? It's really kind of exciting because there is an exhibit that I'll let you do the big reveal on that is an essential part of kind of the American ethos that you may not know a lot of this individual's work, but you know his work. Oh, definitely. This, this, it's a name that uh, automatically makes a picture in anyone's mind when they hear it. Uh, so we're hosting a show of uh, both covering the life and work of John James Audubon. It just opened, and it's going to run through September 19th of 2021. In addition to uh, the Audubon exhibition, we're also featuring uh, a contemporary take on the, the natural world through the work of um, a central Washington artist named Justin Gibbons, and his show is called Birds and Beasts. Um, it really drawing on uh, kind of that uh, same uh, scientific natural illustration that you see with Audubon, but in uh, kind of contemporary watercolor drawings. We're hosting Roots of Wisdom, Native Knowledge, Shared Science, and those are stories um, from indigenous communities and uh, real-world examples of how traditional knowledge 
and cutting edge Western science or creating solutions for contemporary problems like nutritional health and restoring ecosystems. And that's uh, touring courtesy of OMSI. Mm-hmm. To go back to the Audubon for a second, sure. again, the work of John James Audubon is very much a, a part of the American ethos. And there's something about it that when I see his work, it really kind of takes me back to another era. And I don't know if you have that experience. All of a sudden, it's like you're you're back in the 19th century again. Oh, absolutely. Um for for me as as you know working on this exhibition uh, this was a very unusual again one of those potential silver linings for the museum world uh, unusual format for us uh, to borrow a collection like we did from the uh, John James Audubon Museum in Henderson Kentucky and um, we had the uh, freedom and creative ability to create our own storyline with their collection of course you know they gave us uh, guidelines and uh, some some inspiration for where we might take that. But, you know, this is very much uh, a story told, I think, with our local perspective in mind. So kind of the questions that we might ask from our, our region, um, you know, not being as directly connected to uh, the landscape of Audubon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very different birds in many cases than the, the mm-hmm. ones we experience around here, which is part of the fascination of it. I know certainly was for me for a, a very long time of uh, just seeing these creatures who ordinarily I would not. Those are not the, the birds that are around where I live. All right. Well, um, anything else that's up and running for the rest of the summer or at least part of the summer? Absolutely. We have uh, uh, the first of a series of exhibitions called What We Make. This first uh, installation is called Nature is Inspiration. And that's going to be opening mid-June, and it'll run through January of um, 2022. And this is an interactive family exhibition, so they're going to be exploring um, the love of making and inspiration from objects from our collection that um, uh, are basically going to be set within a maker space or a maker-in-residence atmosphere. You were talking about the Campbell House Mm -hmm. a little bit earlier, and there is still part of a larger exhibit that was at the MAC for, uh, for quite a while in the winter and, er, and early spring, the Downton Abbey exhibit. There was a supplementary material that came from the Campbell House, which I, I guess is still on display until mid-June. We had a companion exhibit for um, dressing the Abbey uh, called Spinning a Yarn and that over at uh, the Campbell House, and that did feature, uh, or still does feature, uh, it's still up and running, um, personal stories uh, surrounding uh, pieces from our historic clothing collection. And we'll be uh, reinstalling a new iteration of that show, uh, kind of in conjunction with Audubon, that'll begin in July, and that's uh, titled Wild Things. So that will be uh, examples from our historic clothing um, collection that uh, are fur, feathers, uh, leather, so anything that is tied to living creatures. And uh, we'll again be looking at the social fabric of the Campbell's era through mm-hmm. that. And then the other one that is is mentioned here on the website, at least, is the Unpacking World War II. Yes, yes. Uh, that um, So Unpacking World War II is one of our exhibitions that uh, opened during the pandemic, and uh, we've extended uh, through the end of the summer. Um, so that will be up through the end of August. And that's really based on um, the idea of the stories, not only the stories, but the uh, family heirlooms and collections and things that are still in a part of the part of the American consciousness, and we're still passing down uh, from generation to generation. 
All right. Well, it's a, a very full docket of experiences for those who go to the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture during this summer. And so, uh, Fred Leggett, thank you for, for coming by and uh, cluing us in on the experience itself, what it's going to be like, and also what we're going to experience at the MAC. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I uh, hope to see a lot of uh, faces down at the MAC and enjoy our beautiful campus this summer. More exhibit information and ticket reservation details for the MAC are at northwestmuseum.org. We continue our hearing of performances from our sibling revelry kids concert with the most unusual arrangement of one of the most iconic moments in all music, the slow movement of Joaquin Rodrigo's Concierto de Aranjuez, quite far away from the original's mix of guitar and orchestra is this unique impression of the piece by flugelhorn player Sam Morozov and his sister, violinist Jesse Morozov. We'll let Sam explain first. The Concerto de Aranjuez is a staple of our repertoire. We've probably performed it four or five times now, and we keep coming back to it with uh, slightly improved arrangements each time. I've been doing music notation for four or five years at this point, and um, each opportunity to perform the concerto has given me a new opportunity to rearrange it and do some new things with it to keep it interesting. And it comes from a film called Brassed Off that I'm a big fan of, and it was really inspirational to me. So a lot of the arranging between us two is really just what inspires us and what allows us to come together as musicians and make music without having to worry about, oh, well, she's a violin player and I'm a trumpet player. How do we make that compatible? It is quite challenging at times to find and arrange uh, music that we can play together uh, with, the, with the varying instruments. Especially when I was younger, it, it was really hard to, <laughs> to match his volume. <laughs> yeah, sure. But that's, uh, that's been a learning experience for both of us and really pushed us both as musicians for me to be a more sensitive player and for Jesse to play out and work on things that she's naturally good at getting out there and getting out of her comfort zone and playing, but this was another step further than that, trying to outplay a trumpet. It's not an easy task.
Jesse and Sam Morozov from our most recent KPBX Kids Concert. We consider the support and promotion of the abilities of young musicians to be part of our core mission here at Spokane Public Radio. As well, we are delighted to highlight other achievements in the arts by our children and young adults. Recently, the Washington State School Superintendent's Office recognized students specifically for their artistic accomplishments. The list included two students from Mount Spokane High School. Doug Nadvornik tells us more. This spring's annual Washington State Student Art Show is moved online with your host, State Superintendent Chris Rakedahl. Today we are live on Facebook with the 48th annual art show. You're going to see talent from our students all over the state. It's going to be an incredible time. You are going to be inspired, you are going to be impressed, and you are going to want to meet these artists someday. Come on One of those inspirational students was Lindsay Scarlett, a Mount Spokane High School student who won the Washington Association of School Administrators Award for her pencil sketch, Contours of Flathead. Her art teacher is Jenny Hatcher. She has um, tremendous art talent. It's, it's sad because she actually doesn't want to go into an art field, but ever since I started working with her, she just picks up on mediums and techniques so fast. And um, she goes to a place called this Art Salvage, and she'll get these topographical maps. So it was a portrait of a friend um, done in graphite, and she used the lines of the map to mimic also the topography of the face. She was just really interested in doing um, some map drawings this year. And so that was her first map drawing that she won the award with. I really fell in love with this technique because it can kind of portray the connection between humans and our environment by merging the contours of the face with the contours of our landscape that are already present on a map. Also on the winner's list, Scarlett's peer at Mount Spokane, Anthony Browning. He won an honorable mention for a pencil and oil pastel piece that he calls chronophobia. It takes place in a dystopian London where uh, clocks are on the faces of people. On It's everywhere in their society. And uh, all of the clocks are telling a different time. His teacher, Angelica Wilson-Whip, calls Browning's award a big deal, in part because this is not his usual art medium. Anthony, uh, last year, was uh, mainly doing 3D sculpture. And this year, because of COVID, we weren't able to do uh, much uh, 3D work uh, because uh, students weren't able to leave uh, much in the classroom because we never knew from day to day whether some students would be quarantined or not. So Anthony completely shifted to... 2D and um, and made um, made some really fantastic art. Um, some of it uh, layered collage. So incorporating his um, his uh, 3D uh, abilities and um, and now we're back uh, working with a little bit of clay as uh, things have normalized a little bit at our schools. I 
hope to incorporate art into the design of buildings uh, in my future because I like Art Deco and I thought it was a very beautiful look. So uh, adding some of that back into modern architecture would be very interesting and fun. You can see both pieces from Anthony Browning and Lindsay Scarlett at our website at spokanepublicradio.org. I'm Doug Nadvornik reporting. We again have the great pleasure and privilege of speaking with James Lowe, music director of the Spokane Symphony Orchestra, uh, safely at home again in Edinburgh. So greetings to you, James. Thank you very much, Jim. Nice to be back. We last heard from you when you were here in Spokane and working on a very large and very audacious project that was just coming to fruition as you uh, traveled back home again. And that is of a virtual Spokane Symphony spring season. And I say audacious because this is certainly the first time that you have been directing, with a capital D, does the entirety of a, a combination video and audio offering. Yes, it was an amazing experience. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I didn't do everything alone. There was a fantastic Don Hamilton studio helped us. Don was our director of photography. Um, Hannah Sander did some fantastic video editing, all the video editing. Uh, and Nick Palmieri from them did the audio edits. But what was interesting for me was working so closely with Hannah and the video control. You know, I've done video work before and normally you film it and it goes away for a while and it comes back as a completed product. This is the first time where I was really involved in some choices of shots and, and how it's all put together. So that was really exciting for me. And I, I can understand now why Von Karajan really loved to have his own films cut and edited and uh, done by himself now, but uh, I, I'm going to attempt not to descend into that level of megalomania for long. <laughs> there we go. I, I do have a question, though, of a general sort, and that is, is it your sense that what you've been doing with this project is something you're going to be spending a lot more time with as we move ahead? I think it's inevitable for all orchestras, really, that, that um, video work and online presence is going to become ever more important. I think COVID taught us that the classical music industry, generally speaking, is relatively slow on the uptake for technological change. Um, so I think there will probably, in fact, I'm pretty certain there'll be some video elements. I mean, what I would like to offer is the idea that a subscription, a bit like if you subscribe to the New York Times, you can get the digital or the print edition, um, or both. And so the idea, if you're a subscriber, you will also have the option to watch some of these concerts online if you can't and, and, or don't feel comfortable coming down to the hall. So that's my hope for the future. And I think that's a, a, workable, uh, a workable thing we can do. Right. It's going to be an entirely different scale once the entire orchestra is back together again. But an observation from my standpoint as a consumer of music, I find the television experience of concert music to be a really unsatisfying one because of the uh, the narrowness of bandwidth that's available on the television uh, television signal you may have wonderful high definition video but the audio is really tamped down and smashed and sometimes the the editing especially leaves something to be desired because you are hearing what they want you to hear. 
in terms of specific instruments, and so what you miss is the ensemble. And I guess that's a very long intro to, if you're talking about a digital presentation, the sound is a whole lot better, which is the main event after all. Well, that's how we kind of approached it, was the idea was that we were basically making CD recordings with visuals rather than the idea that this, the, the audio, as you say, was something kind of smashed together and a little bit compressed. So we're broadcasting this, I mean, in full HD video definition and also great audio quality. So it depends very much on really on your equipment that you're playing it on at the other end. So it's a little bit much more like the old good old days when your hi-fi equipment kind of... Uh, was the, the the base level for your listening experience so we we really made a we took a lot of efforts on the sound to make it sound fantastic and i think uh we we really do have a, a fantastic uh sound by the end of it uh, and i'm very proud of that and just the moral of the story is uh, when you listen make sure it's not on earbuds and it's not on computer speakers that you allow it it uh, is full depth and, and breadth of sound Hear my whole conversation with James Lowe next Monday evening at 7 on the final Music That Matters episode of the season. We'll hear selections from the current Overtones virtual series of the Spokane Symphony Orchestra, including this piece. It's called Michael's Wood and features members of the orchestra and, participating from Scotland, composer and fiddler Chris Stout and Scottish folk harpist Christina Mackay. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tevenin. Help today came from Doug Nadvornik and Vern Windham. We're grateful as well for the contributions of Freya Liggett, James Lowe, our artists and teachers from Mount Spokane High School, and our young performers, Jesse and Sam Morozov. Please join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio. <laughs>